Most of you are veterans, and so you know the uh, MO here, method of operation. But um, this is a 10-week series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, so every Monday at this time, we'll meet here every Monday, 10 Mondays in a row. Uh, I have a list uh, that I send the, a message from what I'm going to say. It's pretty much the same thing. And also send out study questions uh, beforehand. So uh, if you are not on that list and you want to be on the list, a lot of people don't you know, want to do the study questions, so uh, no reason to send them to you. But uh, I send them email. Uh, so let me have your email address if you're not getting them yet or, and you actually want them. Um, also, uh, you know, lunch is served uh, at 11.45, and I'll try to start talking about 12.15. And um, we're just going to, this is actually a Bible study, so we're going to talk about what the Bible says, hopefully, <laughs> instead of what, you know, other people say or what theologians say. Uh, and uh, I'll try to keep uh, opinions out of it, you know. Uh, and so make sure you don't give me your opinion. <laughs> All right. Um, and today, uh, we're, we start, Mark starts his gospel out uh, with uh, John the Baptist preaching. And John the Baptist, as you may know, uh, had a message of confession and repentance. Repentance. And uh, I think Ralph Cramden... Ralph gets himself in some trouble. Have you ever noticed that? All right, we're in the Gospel of Mark. If you'll turn there uh, in your Bible or your electronic device, uh, we'll go through uh, hopefully chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. Now, just a few things about the Gospel of Mark. It's uh, distinctive from the other Gospels in that it's the shortest Gospel. Also, it's... Uh, uh, it doesn't have the birth narrative. It doesn't have a lot of the longer sermons. And uh, it's, it uh, is obviously written to a, a Gentile audience because he has to explain Jewish customs and uh, what uh, Jewish uh, words mean and, and whatnot. Uh, he gives explanations for a lot of things. There's no genealogy like you have in Matthew. That's a big deal to a Jew Jewish audience, uh, but he, he doesn't have that. He uses the Roman system of time, uh, Latin expressions, and he's uh, kind of just like the Roman mind works, because that's probably who he's writing to, is the church uh, in Rome, which is just the facts. You know, remember Sergeant Friday or whatever his name was? You know, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, and you'll see as we go through it, uh, it goes, it's also called the gospel of action because he's always moving from one to place and there's a sense of urgency there and a, and a time limitation there. And Mark uses uh, one word constantly. It's used 42 times in 16 chapters and that word is immediately. So Jesus is always on the move. He's always teaching, healing, uh, dealing with people and then he's on the go, you know. Uh, and so it is different from the other Gospels, and I, I find it uh, 
a lot of fun to teach because there's so many. It's just about one story after another. He's always moving to different locations, different audiences, and there's a brand new story in every one. So uh, we, we know that Mark wrote this, even though it's anonymous. It never uses Mark's name in the gospel. But from the very earliest of times, at the very end of the first century, we know that the churches were attributing this work to Mark. Uh, and Mark, who is he? He is the guy, he's mentioned ten times in the New Testament uh, as being disciples of both Peter and Paul. He did a lot of traveling with both of those guys, and they both mention him in their respective letters. Uh, he went on uh, Paul's first missionary journey with him, you know, so he was traveling with Paul for probably anywhere from three to six months. Uh, he was a cousin of Barnabas, who uh, also uh, traveled with Paul. Uh, he was the young man, we, uh, we're told, in the Gospel of Mark 14, uh, that is there at the arrest of Jesus. So he's also an eyewitness of a lot of the things that happened in Jesus' life. And as you know, uh, one of the uh, rules... Uh, of the New Testament, to, to be a book in the New Testament, you have to have apostolic authority. Uh, the 27 books in the New Testament all have apostolic authority. Now, an apostle either wrote it or the, all the information came from them. And so even though Mark was, uh, you might say, a scribe, uh, we're told by the early church fathers that Peter basically dictated the stories to Mark and he wrote them down while they were in Rome. Peter was uh, probably in danger of being martyred, executed at the time. It would be in the uh, early 60s uh, that he, Peter was in uh, Rome. And uh, he got John Mark to make sure and write down the history of Jesus before, he was, before Peter was martyred. And gave it to the church there in Rome. All right. Um, so... Uh, as I said, all of the church fathers attributed this to Mark. Uh, his mother uh, owned the upper room, you know, the Last Supper that, that they hung out in, and you find them still hanging out in uh, Acts chapter 12. It's where they all meet uh, in uh, the early church period, and that was John Mark's home, his uh, mother's house. And so he was in the middle of everything that was going on. And so he, he is a good eyewitness and all the information uh, that is inspired to be in his gospel came from uh, Paul and Peter, all, both apostles. All right. Uh, he begins in chapter 1, verse 1. As I said, there's no birth narrative. There's no genealogy. He begins right at the beginning of the ministry when Jesus began his ministry uh, was when he came to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was, and John the Baptist uh, recognized him, presented him as the Messiah. And we're told in Luke's account that Jesus was uh, a little bit over 30 years of age. And so Jesus lived a completely normal, mundane life until he was about 30. And then he began his, his uh, full-time ministry. Um, 
and it lasted about three years before the crucifixion. Uh, and you may be thinking, uh, I wonder why we don't have any records of him when he was young. Uh, I wonder why we're not told anything about that in the Gospels. And uh, I think the reason is, and all the commentators believe that the reason is, it was God's will that Jesus live, be born a baby, you know, the, God took on the flesh, and then he lived a completely normal life. He had all the childhood diseases, you know, he, was, he had to go to school and learn, and uh, probably was beaten up by the school bully, and uh, chosen last on the Sandlot football team, all these kind of things, you know, the humiliations that we all go through in life, uh, he went through every one of them, see? Because God was proving that, A, he was 100% human and 100% God, but so he went through all, everything that a human would go through. So that when he was proven to be sinless, we know, we, you know, you can't say, well, if he'd have lived my life, he wouldn't be sinless. You know, the tough breaks I've gotten, you know, he would have wrong he went through everything that you and I have gone through and more and yet he resisted all the temptations and he lived a perfect sinless life uh, and so therefore not only is he the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us but also knowing us having experienced what it's like to be a fragile human being with this flesh and blood and all the trouble that can come our way in a lifetime, having experienced that, our Savior has empathy for us. He has empathy for us. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews says that in Hebrews 3 and 4. He says, we have a Savior who knows everything that you've been through. All the pain and the heartache, as well as the good times. He knows all of it. He's experienced it all. And so... He feels for us, the author says. He has empathy for us. He loves us, uh, not only as God, but he, he understands all the difficulty that we've had in life. Uh, and he knows what we need. He knows what we need as our Savior. Uh, and so, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ He's about 30 years old, and he comes on the scene, just explodes on the scene. John the Baptist has had a very fruitful ministry. Uh, at least six months before Jesus appeared, John the Baptist was out preaching in the wilderness. And John the Baptist is a very interesting guy because he looked just like, just as the prophet said, the forerunner of the Messiah would be someone like Elijah. He'd be a prophet like Elijah in the sense that he'd be out in the wilderness. You know, if you go to uh, 1 Kings 18 and 19, you'll see Elijah just appeared. And he came out of the wilderness, and then after he, he gave his message to the king in Israel, he went back out and lived in the wilderness, see? And so th that's what John the Baptist is. He just appears in the wilderness and he's at the Jordan River preaching. And it's amazing because people are going out to him. And yet his ministry, his sermons, his teaching is very convicting. In fact, it was confrontational. In Luke chapter 3, he actually gives 
one of the messages, one of the sermons that John gives before he does the baptisms, and it is brutal. It gets personal. If he was here today, standing up here, can you imagine he would go around the room and he would say, whatever your vocation was or whatever you were involved in, he would read you the riot act. Like in in Luke chapter 3, he says to the soldier, stop taking bribes. Stop abusing your power. And then he goes to the the, uh, politician. Stop being crooked. Then he goes to the policeman. Stop abusing your power. And he goes to everybody in every vocation, right? Talks to the real estate guy and says, stop selling swampland. Whoever you are, can you imagine that? I mean, and he, he obviously got two different reactions. Some people didn't like it and went off in a huff, but other people were convicted. And they confessed and repented. That was his message. You need to confess and repent in order to be ready for the Messiah because the time of the Messiah is at hand. He's coming imminently, and you need to be ready. Well, how do you get ready? You clean up your act and change your mind, see? And so people that were convicted by his message stepped up and did just that, confessed and repented. I want to change. I want to be prepared for my Savior. And that's what the baptism of John the Baptist was all about. It was a baptism of repentance. Naturally, when we think of baptism, we think of, the baptism that you, know, you may have or that you see in your church, uh, it's a different baptism. The baptism of John the Baptist was one of repentance. It's where people stood up and said, I've been a sinner, but I'm going to change my ways, and uh, I want you know, all, everybody to know, you know that I'm sorry and I'm repenting of this. And uh, then they would go underwater, and it was an identification thing of, of a new life that they were supposedly going to lead. But the point of John's baptism was you get ready for the Messiah. Uh, and amazingly, big crowds were going out to him. Can you imagine all these crowds going out knowing they were going to get ripped to pieces? You know? But I think people went back feeling good, you know, because it's like, you know, the reason people go to uh, uh, analysts or counselors. You know, once they, they can talk some things out and then reveal some things about themselves, get things off their chest, uh, and kind of clear their conscience, right? And that's what people, you know, were doing with John the Baptist, and that's why these big crowds were coming out. And it was an amazing thing to the religious leaders in Jerusalem because this guy is totally anti-establishment, anti-establishment. He's out in the wilderness. He's not at the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't have the education that the Pharisees and those guys have. And yet these huge crowds are going out there. So one of the people that was always in the audience was a, would be a group of Pharisees or priests because they'd hear about this guy out in the wilderness and so they were out there spying on him just as they're going to do with Jesus as well. And so they go out there and guess what? John the Baptist says, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you need to repent of your hypocrisy. You know, they were, <laughs> you know, you can imagine. 
their response to that. Uh, and then a lot of people were so amazed at his inspired preaching and his message, and they felt so good about what he was saying and their baptism. They said, you're awesome. Are you the promised one? Are you the Christ? And he said, no, I am not. Think of the temptation to say, yes. <laughs> now, boys, pass the hat. We're collecting. No. No, he said, no. In fact, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah that's coming. And we see at the river as you go through here, beginning of the gospel, as it is written, so he fulfilled prophecy. Uh, it's in Isaiah and also Malachi. Uh, a prophet, a messenger before the Messiah to make ready the way of the Lord. So to be, make the people prepared. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that was the key. Step up, be baptized, ask for, you know, confess your sins, be forgiven, and have an attitude of I want a, I want a life-changing experience. I don't want to lie, cheat, and steal anymore. I don't want to uh, take advantage of people anymore. And the response in verse 5 was, all the country of Judea. Now we have a map, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, just to show you where he was, you can see uh, this is, uh, you see Jerusalem down here, and this is Jerusalem, the, the Mediterranean Sea there. Um, and if you look up the north where the furthest north arrow is, you see the Sea of Galilee. That's where uh, Jesus' area where he was uh, living, and that's where most of his ministry will be in the gospel. Uh, but then also, you see the Jordan River come out of the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And this Jordan River Valley, uh, as you come down further south, is the area of Judea. Uh, it would be, yeah, there you go. So you see uh, Jerusalem down here, and that whole area in brown there is what's called Judea. And so that's what he's saying here. He was preaching in the wilderness by the river over here, in the area of Judea. And all the people were going out to see him and hear his message, and many were baptized. All right? Um, and that's Capernaum. It's going to be where Jesus is going to make his base of operations. That's where Peter's house was. That's where uh, today's story will take place uh, that we finish with is in Capernaum. Um, and most of Jesus' ministry was in that north and uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. And then on the uh, Passover and some of the great Jewish feasts, Jesus would go and spend a short while, a weekend or a week, in Jerusalem. But most of the time, he was up here around the Sea of Galilee. All right. Uh, in today's lesson, we're going to be moving pretty fast. And uh, we're going to see the scene with John the Baptist, and then Jesus is going to be baptized in the next scene. And then he's going to be taken right out to be tempted by Satan. Uh, and then fourth section, he's going to go out on a teaching spree 
and pick up some disciples, Peter and James and John and Andrew and then the rest of them. Uh, And then he's going to go back to Capernaum and be teaching and doing miracles in the fifth section. All right? Uh, So, John the Baptist's message, and they're confessing their sins. And verse 6 says he looks just like Elijah. He wore a camel's hair coat, wore a leather belt. And when he had a really good meal, it was locusts and wild honey. Other days it was probably ants and stuff, you know. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier, greater than I, and I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. And there'll be a difference in the baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. It was, like I said, a baptism of repentance. You're identifying yourself as wanting to repent. But the baptism of Jesus, he says, will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it's a different, the, the New Testament talks about a baptism. The word baptismal means to identify with, right? Uh, and it comes from the uh, verb to dye a cloth. And so you would take a white or a cloth that was colorless and you dip it in a color, red, purple, whatever. And when it came out, it was now identified with a different color. And so uh, they use that. A Greek word in the New Testament to signify when everybody was coming to be identified with John's dunking in the river. And then also it uses it for the baptism of Jesus that actually happens to you when the Holy Spirit indwells you and begins to change your heart. And you're saved all at that moment, that point in time when you believe in Jesus as your Savior. Uh, And then you're also told to have a baptism, a water baptism, uh, which is your, what you do in churches today, what we all do in churches today, and what they did in Acts chapter 2 when the people identified themselves publicly as Christians. So a lot of different baptisms in the the New Testament. Uh, And so he's making that distinction. When Jesus comes, his baptism will be greater because the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be forgiven of your sins, and you'll be saved. And then verse 9, here comes Jesus. Now, it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And you might say, wait a minute. If this is a baptism to confess and repent of sin, why does Jesus need to be baptized? You're exactly right. In Luke's account, I mean, in John's account, John, uh, the, the disciples say, John says, no, no, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. I'm a sinner. You're not. And Jesus says, no, no, you need to do this because this is how God is going to introduce me to sinners. And so all the people there at the river were uh, confessing and repenting of sin, and he came to identify himself, his ministry with sinners, but also it was an introduction. This is the Messiah. And, and God and John the Baptist is going to point to him and say, this is the guy, and then God will confirm it. And it's an awesome scene of the Trinity. It's the only place uh, I know of where all three persons of the Trinity show up at the same time and seem to be distinct 
persons, right? Uh, so look at it. It came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. And the Spirit of God, in the form of a dove, looked like it wasn't a dove, it just looked like something like that, descended upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And so the introduction of Jesus, not only as the uh, longed-for, promised Messiah, which means the anointed one of God, but also God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. In other words, he is like me, of the same essence as of God. He is God in the flesh. And God is well-pleased to introduce him now uh, and behind him and involved in his ministry. So it's pretty cool. They get to see Jesus in the river, the Son of God in the river. They get to see the Spirit of God descending, and they get to hear the voice of God the Father in heaven. All three persons of the Trinity right there in the same scene. Distinct individuals, and yet all one. And if you can figure that out, please let me know. One of my professors at seminary said, if you don't believe that, you're going to hell. But if you do believe it, it's going to drive you crazy. And now, you would think, okay, he's, he's been introduced. He's totally awesome. He's an amazing guy. It's time for a glorious party. It's time... You know, to do something awesome, you'd be wrong. In God's economy, it's time to take him out, take Jesus out in the wilderness to fast and pray and to be tempted by the devil. So the humiliation of it, to go out there and just torture your physical body and then uh, just be made available by God the Father and the Holy Spirit to be tempted, to be pushed around by the adversary of God. The adversary of God. So what's going to happen? And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So he's out there completely alone, and he's, and he's, we know in Matthew and Luke's account, he's fasting for 40 days. So when Satan appears to him, he's incredibly hungry. So what's the first temptation? I know how hungry you are. With your power, just turn the rocks into bread. You can do it. You know, and Jesus resisted all those temptations with Scripture. And here's something uh, you need to know. Satan's temptation was always with Scripture, but he would misstate it. He would change it a little, see? So it's very important to know Scripture the way it really is, right? And so uh, just the three temptations, uh, Mark doesn't give them, but they're in the other Gospels. 
The first one's appeal to his his desires of the, of his body. He, he had to be very hungry. The second one, he said, uh, "Look, uh, there's no reason for you to have to go through all the stuff you're going to have to go through to prove you're the Messiah. Just let's just go up on the temple. You can jump off. You know." Uh, God's angels are going to catch you and everybody in Jerusalem can see it. A shortcut. (laughs) And Jesus says, no, that's not God's will. He wants me to go through a three-year ministry and go to all these places and speak the word of God everywhere I go and leave it to people's free will to believe or not to believe. All right? And then the third one, He says, okay, you came to set up the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, And that's what everybody's looking for. There's no reason to have to go through this bloody mess with the crucifixion and all the beatings. Look, let me show you all the kingdoms of the world, Satan says. I'll give them to you. You can have them right now. You don't have to go through all that. I'm sure it went through his mind being you know, 100% human, as well as 100% God, went through his mind, you know, I don't really want to be crucified. (laughs) I don't really want to be beaten and have all that horrible stuff happen to me. But how was he able to resist? A lot of people say, well, he couldn't have been tempted if he was God. God can't be tempted. Well, Jesus was unique. Being 100% human, that part of him was tempted. He was hungry. He didn't want to be going through all the pain and suffering of the crucifixion. But because he was also 100% God, he was able to resist the strongest temptations. So it would be like taking a a string that you can, you know, bend all around, tie it, and break it. Uh, That's the human nature in the image. But if you put that string on a steel bar, image of being God, then you can't can't, uh, bend it. You can't tear it. And that's Jesus. As God, he was able to resist the temptations. So yes, he was tempted, and he did feel it, and now he understands the temptations we go through, but he was able to resist being God. And then when he came in after the temptations, verse 14, he went out preaching the word and this is the essence of his message the kingdom of God is at hand he saw himself as the kingdom of God in other words the essence of the kingdom of God is God's rule God's ruling authority so Jesus had come to be the ruler of all that believe in him and eventually He will be the ruler physically of the kingdom of God. A lot of people say, well, the kingdom of God is in your heart and all that. It is in the sense that you are obedient, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're obedient to his word. Because the essence of the kingdom, of him saying the kingdom is at hand, is the rule of God is available to you. It's at hand if you'll have it. You can have it. Let God rule over your life. So the kingdom is, God is at hand. What do you need to do to have it? Repent and believe in the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the Greek word for good news. 
the good news about Jesus Christ. He's going to die for your sins and atone for them so that you're forgiven and you're saved unto eternal life. Right? And that was his preaching. Uh, and as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Peter and Andrew. And so we know in Luke's account, Luke 5, he tells us the miracle he did there where they put the net on the other side of the boat and they caught all the fish. And they were so amazed by it, they immediately realized this is God in the flesh. And they dropped everything. Dropped their nets, left their boat, everything, and followed him. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. Uh, and then he picked up James and John there. Now in verse 21, uh, they go to their base of operations, Peter's house in Capernaum. And on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and he does a miracle there. He, uh, you might say, exercises a demon. And you'll see as we go through, there's, there's a lot of demonic activity. And if you're like me, you're going, you know, I've never had any experience with demons. Why is there so much in the Gospels? Well, remember, he just got tempted by the devil. So the devil knows he's there. And he knows what God's plan is to redeem people and to set up the kingdom of God. So the devil and his guys are resisting. So they normally stay behind the scenes, unknown, unseen. They're kind of like spies during the Cold War, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. You knew there was Russian spies here, but did anybody ever see one? Not one person, see? They were behind the scenes somewhere. They were out there spying but, you, you know, they're not going to make themselves known. And that's the way it was with demonic activity. But when Jesus came, they kind of came out of the, the woodwork to oppose him. So he runs into one of these guys in the synagogue, which blows your mind. This guy was a religious guy in the synagogue. And yet he was demon-possessed. And don't forget that the religion of those days was a institutional, legalistic religion of works. You weren't saved by grace. You were saved by keeping the law and doing this and doing that. They had thousands of things you had to do and thousands that you couldn't do, you know. Very legalistic. And we know that's, we've got no chance with that. We can't keep all that. They couldn't keep all that. But it's a great strategy for the adversary of God. Because he can convince you of your self-righteousness and that you can keep all these rules and that you're, you're basically a good person and you've got it made. I mean, you ask a lot of people, if, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And most of them will say, well, I think so. I'm really a good person. I've led a good life. I've done this, 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 and this. That's the greatest strategy of the adversary of God. Because the Bible is very clear. There's no good people. We're all sinners. We're all the same. It's the same nature. We all need a Savior. Christ. And so Jesus rebuked this unclean spirit. And it came out of the guy. And there was an obvious difference. Uh, in verse 26, he threw him the devil, the demon threw him into convulsions and a voice and all this awful stuff. And then the guy was clean and all the people were amazed. 
And they said, who is this guy, Jesus, who teaches with authority and has command even over the demons? Who is this guy? It kind of blew their minds. And then uh, as they left the synagogue, you know, Peter, his house, if you've been there, been there to Capernaum, a lot of you have, uh, the house is like two doors down. Yeah, they built a, uh, a uh, the Catholics built a church on top of St. Peter's house there. Um, but you can see the ruins of it, and it's right next to the, syn- the ancient synagogue, the ruins of the ancient synagogue um, in Capernaum. You can go there and see it. Uh, and so Peter coming out of the synagogue said, hey guys, my, my uh, mother is a, is a terrific cook. And she always has dinner ready for us right after the you know, synagogue meeting. So let's go have lunch. And so they go there, and lo and behold, his uh, mother is sick unto death. I mean, she is really, his, it's his mother-in-law actually, lying sick with a high fever. And so they said to Jesus, can you help her? He came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand. The fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening had come, after the sun had set, this is important, on the Sabbath it was illegal technically to do anything that was medical related. You know, you, you couldn't work on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath ended at 6 p.m. So right after 6 p.m., a huge crowd shows up at Peter's house. You know, I'm supposed to have a knee replacement, but I was wondering if this guy can fix it so I don't have to go through that. Somebody else, I got this uh, tumor here, you know, maybe, you know. So everybody's got something, right? So the whole city basically comes to Peter's house to be healed. And he's healing guys and, and women right and left. And the word spreads out. And it's just an amazing uh, experience for everybody. And he uh, drove out some more demons there in verse 34. He heals a leper in verse uh, 40 through 45. And then we come to chapter 2. After he goes out into the country, he comes back. And I take it, he comes back to Capernaum. And we know that he always stayed at Peter's house. So he's back at Peter's house in chapter 2. And this is one of my really favorite stories here in chapter 2. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. In other words, his base, which was Peter's house. And many were gathered together. They heard he was there. So the crowds came back. uh, And the way the houses were, uh, you had, they were like, you know, they're like 600 feet below sea level. So they're heat-resistant, you know, mortar-type houses. They would have a flat roof that you could actually go up on to get a, a breeze at night from the ocean, from the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they would be flats, and you would have stairs that would go up there. The roof was made up. They would put cross beams and then lay poles uh, at 90-degree angles and then put a whole bunch of... Uh, twigs and branches and stuff up there and then pack it all down with mud until it dried and then they put tiles on top of that to drain all the water off of. Uh, And so you need to know that because what's going to happen, this is the miracle of the men that carried the pallet with the lame man up on the roof and let him through. They had to dig a hole in that roof 
to get the guy down to Jesus because there was such a huge crowd there they couldn't get in the house, right? That's a zeal. That's, that's a passion to get their friend to Jesus. So many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door. He was speaking the word to them. Uh, I can imagine, you know, that the windows were all open, the doors were open. I mean, you probably didn't know this, but they didn't have air conditioning then. So all the windows and doors would have been open. People would have been standing there. I got a little taste of this when I was in Cuba one time. Uh, and we went to this neighborhood, and we got everybody in the whole neighborhood to come to this one house. And there, we had 135 people in this house. They had emptied it of all the furniture and everything that was in there. And it was like that, too. They don't have electricity there, typically. and They, didn't, they had all the windows and doors open. And there was people packed on the porch, hanging in the windows, in the doorway, everywhere. It was incredible. And I thought of this story when, when, when that was going on. And so with a house packed like that, four guys came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Think about this scene now. This house is packed with people. They dig a hole in the roof. Look how big that hole would have had to be. All that debris falls down on them. If you were in that house, what would you have said? Hey, what are you doing up there? You've got dirt and dust all over you. And what do you think Peter was saying? My house! Who's going to pay for this? And think of the risk the four men that brought the guy were taking. I mean, they were probably going to be charged with breaking and entering, vandalism, destruction of property, and everything else they could think of. And they were going to be held to pay for the damages. But these guys didn't care. They had a passion. They wanted their friend to be helped, and they believed in Jesus, and they were willing to take that risk no matter what. Somebody came up to me another time when I was teaching this and said, well, I'd be willing to tear up your house too. <laughs> All right. And so Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, something very surprising. What would you do if you were sick or had something wrong and you went to the doctor? And the doctor says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Is there another doctor here? <laughs> you don't get it. I came here to be healed. Yeah. But why would Jesus do that? He knows the guy's real problem. We think our problem is, you know, all these physical ailments we have. But God knows, Jesus knew, that the guy's real problem was sin. He needed to be forgiven and to be saved. And so because of the faith that the four guys had and that he had in, in coming and going through all this, Jesus knew of their faith and said, 
Seeing their faith, he said, My son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He got what he really needed. Now, as always, guess who's there? The Pharisees. Those guys are always hanging out, spying on everybody. And you can imagine what they thought when they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. They kind of mumble, but they're really thinking to themselves, only God can forgive sins. Who is this guy? Only God can forgive sins. The amazing part is they're right. They're right. Where they're wrong is they don't admit or don't realize that Jesus is God and has that power and that authority. And I think one of the reasons Jesus did this miracle not only for the guy that was healed, but also to confront the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the scribes. So verse 6 is, there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit, so they didn't say it out loud, but Jesus being omniscient, and, you know, omniscient gives you uh, certain abilities that normal people don't have. He knew what these guys were thinking. He knows what they're up to. He knows what their motivation is. And so knowing what they're thinking and where they're coming from, Jesus immediately, in his spirit, aware of that, says, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? It's a confrontation now between Jesus and these religious leaders who believe you're saved by works. And let's look at what Jesus says in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? So what did, what, what's Jesus' argument there? He's saying, say, anybody can just say that, but who can also tell a person who's crippled for life to get up and walk? Only God. So he did the physical miracle, to prove the spiritual miracle. Of course, the greater miracle is the forgiveness of sins in God's view. And so Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'm going to heal the guy and get, he's going to get up and walk and that should prove to you that I also have the authority as God to forgive sins. So he says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man, that's his messianic title, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. You can imagine the hush that fell over the crowd, waiting to see what was going to happen. And he rose immediately. The guy stands up. And went out in the sight of all. Everybody saw it. This was a small town. Everybody knew this guy. 
There was no trickery here. Couldn't be. They knew him. They were amazed. And they were all glorifying God. Only God could do this. We have never seen anything like this. And I think that should be uh, the testimony of us all, right? Some principles here. You see clearly, I think, the deity of Christ. This is God in the flesh. Claiming you forgive sins, he claimed divinity. Secondly, uh, we see that Jesus' primary purpose was to deal with man's sin problem. You know, people were interested in something else. They were interested in a political military messiah to get rid of the Romans and establish the glory of Israel or to heal their disease or whatever was wrong and solve their problems. But their real problem and Jesus' real primary purpose was to deal with man's sin problem. That's what they really needed. Everything else was secondary. And then thirdly, you see the confrontation. Jesus is not going to let these hypocrites continue to rule over the people without being exposed. So he's, he's really into that confrontation of the religious leaders and exposing their hypocrisy. And at the end of the day, as far as uh, what do we uh, ap- apply today, what, at, what's the application for me and you today reading this? And the question then is, has Jesus said to you, Your sins are forgiven. Have you believed in Christ and had your sins forgiven? Because that is your real problem. People would like to think the real problem of the human race is social ills or economic ills or any number, you know, diseases, all these kind of things. If we could just fix all that stuff. But that's never going to happen. When Jesus came, he healed people, but all the diseases continued after he left. He didn't run the Romans out. He let them continue to dominate and abuse and everything. But was what, what was complete when he left was the forgiveness of sins to those who believe. That's what's on the table. That's what we need. So ask yourself the question. As Jesus said to you, your sins are forgiven. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you and praise you for these wonderful stories. Thank you for your word, how powerful it is. And thank you, Lord, for revealing Jesus Christ as our Savior in whom we put all of our faith and realize it's only through him that we receive the forgiveness of sins. And in his name we pray, amen.